All right, we're going to keep moving. Uh, our next speaker is Risha Balomo, MPASPAC. She has over 15 years of healthcare experience. Risha specializes in medical and cosmetic dermatology and with a background in primary care and emergency medicine. She earned her bachelor's degree in microbiology and a minor in chemistry from the University of Florida and went on to earn a master's degree as a physician assistant through the College of Medicine at the University of Florida. Risha currently is employed with Advanced Dermatology in Orlando, where she has worked for the last nine years. I'd like to introduce Risha Balomo. Thank you, John. All right, can everyone hear me? Good. Okay, let me just make sure I have my clicker. This does look like a lightsaber, doesn't it? Wow, this is big. Okay, and so my name is Risha, and I am going to give you a really interesting talk today about infestation and bites. So there's going to be lots of pictures. It's going to be a lot of fun, um, and hopefully you won't go out of here itching, but I bet you will go back to your rooms and check your mattresses and your box springs after we get done with this. So let's get started. Um, this is just an overview of what we're going to talk about. What isn't on the bottom here is bed bugs. And so I did add this in. I gave this talk in the beginning of the year. And we didn't have bed bugs on it. It was before all the media came. So I decided to take something out and put that in. So we'll talk about that last. But first, we're going to talk about scabies. And this is something that I'm sure many of you see in clinical practice. And um, it is caused by the mite, Sarcopides scabii. And it's very contagious. And it's very, very itchy, especially at night. So it's very important when patients present that you ask them a good history and find out if any of their family members have this itchy type of rash as well. As the mite starts, it becomes generalized in about six to eight weeks because people scratch at it. And when they scratch, it actually spreads the mite. So the female actually is the one that begins the whole cycle, of course, us women, right? We start all kinds of stuff. So the mite begins, it burrows into the stratum corneum, and then it starts to lay its eggs. And the mite lives about 30 days. It extends about 10 to 15 millimeters. So on physical exam, you're not only going to see like a little papule, but you'll see a burrow that occurs as well. And then you can do a scabies prep. How many of you use microscopes in your clinical practice? Good, so quite a few of you. Um, so scabies, you can take a scraping, and it's got to be a pretty good scraping, so you can get part of that stratum corneum, and you put it in one to two drops of mineral oil on a slide, slap a cover slip over there, and then this is what you're going to end up seeing. So you can see that this, let me get my lightsaber out here, this is the mite right here, and the egg, and then the fecal pellets. So the actually, the eggs are laid at a rate of two to three per day. And then the fecal pods are deposited right behind the mite. And it, the larvae mature in two weeks. They copulate, and then they repeat the cycle. <clears throat> so this is the, the distribution that you typically will see. So when a patient comes in, you want to get them fully undressed, and you want to look between their fingers and their toes. You want to look in the genitalia area. You want to look under their arms, around the waistbands. In children, it typically does not affect the face in adults, but in children, sometimes it can go up into, up into the face. And this is just, as you can see, and you can see right here, too, this is a little burrow, but you'll see a burrowing as well. And usually, these are going to be excoriated because people are itching so much. 
here on the buttocks as well, so you want to check. You want to get the patients, if they don't mind taking their undergarments off, it would be a good idea in this case, or just move their underwear aside. Uh, just make sure you give, get permission first. And of course, in the genitalia area as well. Now, this is a, a, a this type of scabies is a little bit more rare. What we initially saw is what we would typically see in the presentation in our clinic. I've only seen two cases of this in the 10 years that I've been practicing derm. And <clears throat> when I first saw it, I didn't really know what it was. And it was my supervising physician that ended up telling me what it was. And then once I saw the second case, I knew exactly. Because once you see a case of this, you'll never, ever forget it. Um, and it's very crusty. It almost looks like sand, like they'd roll around in sand, like so sand is stuck to them. And um, it doesn't typically, it can itch, but it doesn't typically itch as much as the typical scabies that we see. It occurs more in patients that are either immunocompromised, have nutrition disorders, or in Down syndrome or Alzheimer's patients. The two patients that I had are actually Down syndrome patients. And you can just see this overall crusting, and if you do, if you touch their skin, it actually just sort of flakes off. <clears throat> and it can get very hyperkeratotic, it, can, it almost has a yellow discoloration, it can actually fissure and crack as well. So how do we treat scabies? A lot of us use elamide or permethrin, lindane. Um, you can use Urax, it's not as effective, uh, but it's a little bit safer, so in children that might be an option. Um, there's also 10% precipitated sulfur, it's been used forever, we don't really use that in clinical practice anymore, but we typically will do the, permethrin is probably the most prescribed elamide in clinical practice. The other thing that I prescribe a lot is uh, stromectol or ivermectin, and it's 200 micrograms per kilogram, so if you have about a 70 kilogram patient, you'll get about a 15, 14 milligram dose. You take all the pills at once and you repeat in a week. What I found with all cases is even though elamide is indicated for one treatment, I like to treat all of my patients and two treatments. So I'll usually do head-to-toe treatment and then repeat in a week. And this with, with this one, I'll go ahead and repeat in two weeks after their first dose if they're doing an oral ivermectin. But what this actually goes, what they're doing, these medications, is they're paralyzing that mite. And so it binds to that parasite neuron and it ends up killing them. This is not for children. So any patient that is under 15 kilograms should not use this medicine. And it can cause tachycardia, GI upset, and rash. I really haven't seen many patients that I've had complain about too many side effect complaints from this, and I don't get a lot of callbacks unless they can't get it through their insurance for some reason. These are just a couple of, um, through the Journal of American Academy of Dermatology, that they did a test to see you know, how many doses and what would be the cure rate. And what they found is that with ivermectin, you really have to do two doses to be able to get a 95% cure rate, where if you use permethrin, even after one dose, you can get a 97.8% cure rate. I still feel, though, in my clinical practice, that two is better than one, so I go ahead and do two treatments. That's just standard. And they did this with Lindane as well, again showing that after two doses that Lindane had a, a higher percentage of a cure rate for the scabies mite. So the next is pediculosis, and this is an infestation with lights. These, instead of being endoparasites, are ectoparasites. So they don't burrow, they don't go into the stratum corneum, they stay on top. And they're typically either in the head, capitis, corporis on the body, or pubis. 
and they are transmitted by personal contact and also by clothing or objects. So it's very important whenever you have anybody that comes in with any kind of infestation of mite that you give them some type of scabies protocol. In our practice, we actually have it typed up that we can give it to them. And so they need to make sure that they're washing everything in hot water, that they're making sure that they're not sharing their combs, that they're disinfecting. This is really, really important because these can be transmitted from person to person. <clears throat> The other thing interesting about this is that they can actually live off the body for 10 days. So even though it may not be in somebody's hair or on their body, it can transmit. So the life cycle from egg to egg is one month, and the female lays about six eggs per day. And as you know, the nits are those eggs and they cement to the hair. So if you don't get all the nits out, then you're gonna continue to have this cycle of lice occurring. So you have to tell the parents, I mean, they still do, you know, head, head lice uh, inspections at schools, and it does still, I mean, we might not see it. How many of you see head lice in your practices? You still see quite a bit of it? Because I know the pediatricians get a lot of it before they come to us, but, um, so I don't see as much because I think the pediatricians are treating it and then they treat at home and then they get the little knit comb and they try to get everything out. But sometimes if you have a girl that has a lot of hair, she might have to cut some of her hair off. And as you can see here, Right here are the nits, and this is the most common, uh, is the capitis, and we do see it in children. Girls tend to be more than boys because they have a lot more hair. Um, and it's found more often on the back of the scalp. They may even complain like their back itches um, because of the movement of the mites and the hair, because the hair is long. Um, and obviously with any kind of scratching, you can get secondary infection. Here too, these are all the nits. And then right here, if you look right there, that's a mite. And you might not always see the mite, but um, I have had a couple cases, it's been a while, where they were just so bad. Like, you know, the patient comes and goes, well, I'm itching, they don't even know I have lice. And they go, I'm itching so much in my scalp. And you think you're, oh, could it be seborrheic dermatitis? And you go in there and you're like, ah, where's my gloves? I gotta get, so you're like, okay. Um, but I had this one little girl and she was so bad. I'm like, ugh. And I guess, Pediculosis pubis. This is very, very itchy. It's actually one of the most contagious sexually transmitted diseases. So we have a 90% chance of catching this after one sexual exposure, where it's 30% with gonorrhea or chlamydia. And here again, you can just see the nits that are cemented to the hair. <clears throat> Now, pediculosis corporis is not as common, and you're gonna see this more on patients who are like homeless, who aren't showering, that have poor hygiene, that don't change their clothes very often, because the mites actually stay in the clothing, and then they go to the skin to feed, and then they go back to the clothing. And so, you're gonna see more of this on homeless um, patients, patients that just don't change their clothes or don't shower. And so, you can just see, this is just an infestation on the sock, and just so much of it clustered there. You also can see this on eyelashes. You see this a lot on children, and the treatment for this is that you actually, you can wash it with some baby shampoo, like Johnson's Johnson's, and then take Vaseline or Aquaphor or something and smother it on there. And that's really the best treatment for this. But they can get a blepharitis type of symptom, so if they're getting inflammation um, or crusting or anything at the eyelids, just make sure that you look at that really, really closely to make sure that they don't have lice in this area as well. 
So here are some of the things that you can use that are over the counter. You may also need to give them something like um, permethrin, the prescription strength, and you want to repeat this treatment in seven to 10 days, and you just have to make sure that all those nits are gone, because if those nits are not taken care of, and then they hatch, and then they create that whole cycle again. So spiders. I like spiders. I grew up in New Smyrna Beach, which is in Florida, and we had a little townhome on the beach, but my Lara house was in the woods. We lived on about five acres, so when I was a kid, I used to ride horses a lot, and I used to trek through the woods a lot, and we had a ton of spiders, and in our barn, we'd have wolf spiders that were this big, and banana spiders, and so there are a lot of different spiders, and in Florida, you can't go anywhere without, if you don't like bugs, then don't move to Florida, because there are just so many bugs. My husband's actually from Cleveland, and so he's a Yankee, so when he moved and I was born and raised in Florida. So when he moved, I have to take care of all the bugs because he will not touch bugs, he won't do anything with them, and the bugs in Florida can get pretty bad. Um, but out of all the, all the spiders, 50 known to humans, 50 that are known to bite humans, there's only really two that we really need to worry about the most, and that's the black widow and the brown recluse. <clears throat> so the black widow, it's a pretty spider. It's nice and shiny and black, and it has this red hourglass on its um, abdomen. And, but if it bites you, it actually causes severe pain, and it causes muscle cramping. And that'll start localized at the site and then start to spread throughout the torso. And the onset, it continues for up to 24 days and can start to clear, but the patient would need anti-venom and also um, calcium gluconate to help with the muscle relaxation because it's very, very painful. If you had a patient that was presenting, most of the patients are gonna probably end up in the ER, but that's where you're gonna end up sending them. <clears throat> the brown recluse, um, it's sort of a tannish to dark brown type of uh, spider. It's a little bigger as a quarter, as you can see, and it has a violin on its back. These are very timid spiders. They don't tend to come out and be aggressive towards you. You have to somehow for have some forced contact. They tend to stay in darker areas. So if you do come in contact, though, they actually will um, cause quite a bad reaction in the skin. These are where most of the brown recluse are, but actually 60% of brown recluse bites are found outside of these areas. So the question is, are because they like dark areas, or if you're traveling, are they getting into your suitcases or things, and then are you taking them back with you? Um, and that's always a possibility. That's the biggest thing is that with bugs, is sometimes they like to get into things in one area, and then you help them migrate to another area, back to your house. <clears throat> So initially the bite causes some minor stinging or maybe a sharp pain in the area, and then it can cause some mild erythema, some swelling. But then if, it, if you start to notice a more severe reaction, it can be, get like a blackish gray or a purplish look around it, and then you know that there's necrosis that's about to happen. So as you can see here, this is the central bite, and it's starting to have some erythema around it with some induration and the central ulceration that's occurring, and you're starting to see this ring that occurs around it. If you get treatment quick, it will start to heal. If it's more severe, it can end up like this. So you get a huge necrosis that occurs, and then you end up having to debride that necrotic area off, and then hopefully let it granulate in, and then it'll end up with a scar. So the biggest thing is to treat quick, um, because if a patient does have a severe case, and the treatments of choice uh, really is, I mean, Dapsone. 
that's what you're going to have to end up giving a patient. You're also going to want to give them antibiotics and some aspirin as well. But dapsone, if, especially if they're going to have a necrotic type of, of bite, you want to give them dapsone 50, to millig 50 milligrams to 100 milligrams a day. You don't want the, they can ice the area, but you don't want heat. You don't want strenuous exercise. You don't want to go and do surgery right away. You want to make sure that you get it under control first. And then if you have to do debridement afterward, you go ahead and do that. I actually have had three cases of brown recluse, and one was on the nose. And when she went to the ER, they treated her with prednisone. That's all they gave her. And so when she showed up at my office, she had a black escar that was starting to progress. So I put her on dapsone right away. And she came back, and she was fine. But then obviously, she's like, well, now I have a scar. What are you going to do about that? I was like, girl, you're lucky you have a nose. So. Um, but our patients, as much as we may help them, sometimes they're not as appreciative as we would like them to be. And make sure we don't give, obviously in dermatology, we don't give tetanus vaccines, at least our office doesn't. So make sure that they're up to date on their vaccination. If they're not, send them to someone, urgent care center or somewhere they can get their tetanus shot. Fire ants. So. Fire ants are very angry little guys, and uh, I know when I was a kid, there'd be those big fire ants, and you know, kids just want to go and just kick them, kick the mound. And if you ever kick a mound of fire ants, those things go absolutely nuts. They are so crazy. They're just in a frenzy. So if they get a hold of you, they're going to grab on, and they're going to sting you. And they grab onto your skin with the mandibles, and they have a little stinger, and then they just start to go around in circular motion and start to sting you, and it feels like fire. So what happened in the 1930s, these little guys came over from South America and Mobile, Alabama, and they started to spread. And so they continue. They're mainly in the southeast, so we see a lot of them in Florida, and, but they're migrating, obviously, very, very quickly. When you get the... You know, you'll know a fire, a, a fire ant stings you because it burns right away. It feels like fire as soon as they sting you. Um, and then a wheel will occur, and within usually 24 hours or so, you'll get the pustule. And then with that, the pustule will heal, crust, and, and, um, and start to go away if you have a mild reaction. So most of the time, we give antihistamines. You can give a topical anesthetic. You can give uh, topical steroids. But if patients have more severe reactions, you may have to give oral prednisone or IM injection of Kinelog or patients may have to carry around an EpiPen if they're really, really allergic to fire ants. <clears throat> but this is a typical, you see pustules. It's a very, very typical uh, sign of, um, of a fire ant bite. And you're mainly going to see them. A lot of times, you know, if people are gardening, you might see them on the hands. You're going to see them on the feet if people step in them. Um, so, and everywhere they bite, they'll leave a little mark like this. And this guy got quite a few of them. So we talked about this. You can also do cool compresses as well. And here are some treatments that's just found on the internet. And I have to say, we have to become a little bit more savvy of what people are treating on the internet, too, because of the fact that more patients, because of their insurance deductibles, are going to put off coming to the doctor. So they're going to find other things to do. I had one guy who came to me. This isn't about bu bugs, but he actually had read about putting garlic on his acne keloidalis. And so he rubbed pure garlic on there, and he came out with a really horrible garlic burn. That was the worst I'd ever seen in my life. And so we, it took, actually, it, the acne keloidalis did go away but we had to cure, get rid of the burn and, and heal the area. Um, but more of our patients are going to be doing home remedies because of the fact that healthcare is expensive. It's becoming more expensive for them. So we also need to understand what's going on with some of these internet treatments. So when they come to us, we know what they've already done, and we can guide them in the right direction on treatment. 
chiggers, red bugs. So most of these things, if you are a hiker or a camper, you want to be you know, really savvy about these things. And you also want to make sure that when your patients come in, that you're asking a good history. You know, have they been camping? Have they been hiking? Do they like to go hunting? All of those kind of things are going to be important because you got to figure out what's going on with the skin. And <clears throat> so the one thing that we have to watch out with red bugs is that they like to live in the grasses and the bushes. And when you go through the woods, that the little nymphs like to actually catch on to your skin. The adults actually don't. They're vegetarians and they live in the soil. So what happens is the larvae actually attach to the skin and they create this digestive enzyme that goes into the skin. And they usually like to be by a pore or hair follicle. And they create a straw or stylostome that goes down and they start to suck the fluids. And this creates an re inflammatory reaction from the body. So you'll get a wheel that will occur. <clears throat> So they look like this. And they like to usually be in areas of tight clothing. So you'll see them around waistbands, underwear, socks. Those would be where you would see these. And you can see that they're a red wheel. They sometimes have a central area of crusting, discrete lesions. But again, taking, sorry, that one's a little blurry. But so before, if you, you know, the biggest thing is once your patients come to you, you're going to have to treat them. You're going to treat them with oral antihistamines or topical steroids to calm this down. But you want to make sure that you tell them, you know, if you're a camper, if you're a hunter, if you're a hiker, whatnot, that you mu must spray yourself with insect repellent, use, wear loose clothing, and then when you come in, take those clothes off, throw them in the washer, and then get into the... Um, and inspect yourself, because when we get into ticks, you want to make sure that you're inspecting yourself from head to toe. And then get in the shower and scrub to make sure these little nymphs are off of you. <clears throat> Lyme disease, caused by the spirochete, Borrelia burgdorferia, transmitted by the deer tick. So this is more the Northeast. So anybody who lives in the Northeast, anybody here from the Northeast? OK, great. So this is typically where you're going to see more Lyme disease. And it's the nymph stage of the ticks, and they usually feed between May and July. So this is where you may see it. And they transmit a, what's called a spirochete, which is a type of bacteria. And these are the most common areas. So you see sort of in that black and purple, up, black and pink up there, where you see the most um, inhabitation of, that, of the uh, deer tick. There's some other scare, scattered areas, but those are lower risk. So, Here's a tick, one before it had fed and then one after it had fed. And I have to say that I've had a couple of these come in, and one being right here, and the other one being on the axilla is the patients come in and they think they're a mole or a skin tack. And it's not. So you have to let them know, no, it's a tick. And um, then you have to know how to remove it. And so how you remove it is you actually take a good pair of tweezers, and you grasp the mouth, and you can't let go. And then you have to pull it out. If you let go, then it actually will take its di all of it, pretty much it throws up, and throws up into your blood. And that's where the bacteria goes, and that can create an infection. So, so this is what you don't want to do. You want to make sure that you keep it clamped when you take it out at the mouth. And then if you don't, then it actually will release that digestive digestive fluids into the blood along with the bacteria. <clears throat> so if you don't catch 
Lyme disease, there's three clinical manifestations. There's the first stage, which is really where we want to treat. But the problem is that sometimes the rash and the clinical symptoms in that first stage only last a certain period of time. So if you don't get the patient, if the patient hasn't come in, or you haven't done treatment in that period of time, it could manifest into the other two stages. So an acute infection, the tick must have been feeding for at least 24 to 48 hours, and then in one to four weeks, you will start to see, and what will happen is you'll get the, where the bite mark was right here, and then you'll start to see this ring, the erythema chronicum migrans around here. So you'll see a ring, it almost looks like a bullseye kind of lesion. Without treatment, the rash will clear. 50% of the patients will have flu-like symptoms. So it's important that you ask, have you had any headaches? Have you had myalgia, body aches, night sweats, chills, fever that went along with this? You know, again, ask the history. Have you been in some place where they might have been around something like a tick, where ticks are, woods? It can be very, very red and inflamed. So it can just look like this big, large, massive erythema, almost like a cellulitis. <clears throat> or it can have that classic sort of target or bullseye lesion look. And these are just several pictures of different, different ways that it can present if you see it clinically. So it, the disseminated disease, and there's stage two and stage three, and this is when we get into neurological and cardiac symptoms in stage two. So if left untreated, um, it can develop within weeks to months into a more disseminated disease where they'll have neurological symptoms in about 15 to 20% of patients where they can end up with meningitis-like symptoms, encephalopathy, Bell's palsy, and a peripheral neuritis. Cardiac involvement can also occur in about 5 to 10%, occurring several weeks after, and this lasts for three to six weeks. It could be a transient type of heart block, or it could turn into a first-degree heart block to a complete. Chronic or late persistent is where they have more severe neurological symptoms, and they also can have arthritis that can occur. And 60 to 80 percent will actually have musculoskeletal symptoms, especially in the knee, but can affect other joints as well. And the neurological impairment of memory loss, fatigue, radicular pain, and distal paresthesis. So I always say if you, because the titers don't always tell us, and as you can see, this is just a little thing, and I want that guy tested for Lyme disease. So I think the uh, tick left them pretty dry. So antibody testing. So the question is, if patient presents, do you do a titer? Well, you can do a titer, but a lot of them come up to have a false positive. So really, if you're, if you're at all suspect that a patient may have Lyme disease, just go ahead and treat, because pretty much it's three weeks of doxycycline, and that's your treatment. So I think that no matter what, if you have any suspicion of Lyme disease, just go ahead and treat empirically. So Lyme disease, it's 100 milligrams twice a day for 10 to 21 days. If I'm at all suspect of this, I'll do it for three weeks for the 21 days. You can also use amoxicillin and erythromycin if the patient is doxycycline allergic, but doxycycline would be my first line. Rocky Mountain Spotted Fever. Now this is, this condition here, um, I've never seen a case personally. And, um, but this is definitely, uh, I think, also would be referred to the hospital, too, because this is definitely a disease that can kill you. And um, the most frequent reported rickettsial illness in the United States, and it's found throughout Canada and the United States and in Mexico. 
It's transmitted by the American tick or the Rocky Mountain wood tick. Again, ticks, um, you have to be very careful. So when you go in, uh, I know that when I was young, whenever I came in from running in the woods, my mom would check me from head to toe. And you know, if you had a tick, you had to get it taken off. So um, after tick bites, the bacteria multiplies, just like we said before, it gets into that bloodstream and it starts to spread. This one will cause an abrupt fever, headache, and myalgia, and the rash will begin on the fourth day. So they're gonna have systemic symptoms first, and then the rash will begin. It will start on the um, extremities and then become more generalized. It typically starts more as an erythematous macular type of eruption, but then it can turn into a vasculitis type of looking rash, where it can have petechiae, and um, some patients will not have a rash. They may just have systemic type of symptoms. There's a 30% mortality rate in untreated patients. And even patients who are treated still have a 3 to 5% mortality. So this is something that as dermatology PAs, you know, we would want to treat a rash, but if we're suspect, we also want to send them to the hospital because we want to make sure that we're treating, but that there's other healthcare providers in on this just because of the high mortality rate. And you can see with this that they get this vasculitis that occurs. And that's just the first stage of the rash. It tends to be more macular looking, but it can look very, um, look like a classic vasculitis as well. So first you have to do testing, and the serological testing, it will show a four-fold increase in that antibody titer, and that's how you'll know that the patient has it. Doxycycline is still the drug of choice, so of course treat. Doxycycline is a great drug. I mean, we treat it, we treat so many different conditions with this medicine, um, and so it definitely still is the drug of choice. And chloramphenicol for patients who are pregnant or are children. <coughs> Cutaneous larvae migraines. This is always a fun thing to see in clinical practice. Um, it's an interesting little worm that gets underneath the skin. And it typically, I don't see it as much anymore, but when I worked in Gainesville and patients tended to be more working on farms or mechanics, anybody who's gonna be in the soil, it actually is the, um, the adult worm lives in dogs and cats, and so then when they go to the bathroom, it gets into the soil, and then if you're somehow either walking around barefooted or have your knees or down on your knees working on something or gardening or whatnot, then you can potentially get this, and the larvae goes under the skin. In humans, it can't get to the intestines where it wants to get to, so it stays in the skin and it just wanders around aimlessly. And it's got this very classic sort of reticulated look to it, and you'll see a pattern. So it'll move around, and you'll see the left like an erythema, but it won't be as raised on the, on the back end of it. And then as you move, you'll see the squiggly kind of lines and this raised pattern that will occur. This here is on the bottom of a foot. Again, walking around barefooted. You know, it's crazy because I used to always run around barefooted when I was a kid, and I won't let my kids out at all barefooted. So, and here's another one. That's actually a really good one back there. I don't know if I can pick up. That's a very good classic larvae migrants there. Creeping eruption is the other name for it. So mentazole tablets, you can also get this in a suspension and put it on. I have found um, that it's a little harder to get um, 
the suspension to rub on. The mentazole tablets themselves actually can make you very, very sick. Um, but you can also use ivermectin, like we talked about with scabies in this. Um, but if you can get the topical, but they have to apply it four times a day, and that's a lot of times. You know, we talk about patient compliance, and four times a day can definitely be a, a lot for a patient. But if they want to get rid of this, you know, four times a day for a week, that's not too bad. And then, of course, antibiotics uh, for secondary infection and topical steroids if they're really just having a lot, a lot of itching and symptoms associated with it. This is actually a case, I have never had this case, this was a case that um, my supervising physician had, and uh, myesis is a botfly larvae, and so there's actually three stages of cutaneous forms. There's the superficial infection, the dermal slowly migrating patch, and then there's the furuncular form, and the one we're going to talk about is the furuncular form. So Dr. Mamino is my supervising physician, and he had a case, and he wrote an article on it. And he had this young 24-year-old white female present to the office. She had just got back from vacationing in Belize. And she noticed that when she got back, she had this slowly expanding, sort of mildly tender bump on her scalp. Um, and on physical exam, Dr. Mimino saw a two-centimeter indurated erythematous type of nodule um, that there was a little bit of movement in it, there was a central punctate with a little bit of serous drainage, and that's how it presented clinically. And then he made a little incision in it, and that's what came out. So, so if a patient is traveling to some place and you see this, then you make a little incision and this is possibly what can pop out, all right? And that is the larvae form of the bot fly. This is the adult botfly, all right? And this just shows the life cycle of a botfly. And again, the eggs are right here. So the botfly lands on you, the eggs get on your skin, they hatch, and then they tunnel down into your follicle, and then there you go, you have larvae. So, Key points in diagnosis is if you have a non-healing lesion on, ex on exposed skin and you have a little punctate in the middle and you see some serous fluid or any type of movement or anything, then take a little bit of a, take a scalpel or a little blade and, and make sure you ask them if they've been traveling to an endemic area. Pederis dermatitis. So these are little beetles, and um, you just want, they're pretty, they're black and red. Um, but the biggest thing with these is they actually have this blistering type of agent, and it's different than like the Mexican beetle that has the can canthacre that we use. It's not a, they don't use this for uh, if they're threatened. It's actually if you brush them or crush them that that's why you get this type of lesion. So. Um, these little guys are about seven to 10 millimeters long, and if you end up, if you see them on your skin, you cannot, you don't wanna brush them, you don't wanna crush them, because this is what you're gonna end up getting. You need to either blow them off, or you need to take a little paper and coerce them to like get on the paper and walk over there so you can get it off your skin. Because what will happen is you'll get this linear erythematous mark with vesicles, and it'll be um, you know, mildly burning, it will heal over time. It may leave a little post-inflammatory hypo or hyperpigmentation. And topical steroids is, in, um, and we'll talk a little bit about Cipro use in this as well. But again, you just see redness with some vesicles. 
and of course you want to ask the patient, did you ever have any, was any bugs? And these are things that you just want to add when you're seeing a patient that has any type of rash or any strange thing going on. Just ask them, ask about their travel. Ask them if they have any kind of bugs or that they might have come in contact with. And so it's just good to ask those questions because some of the things we see, can, I mean, this could look like an allergic contact dermatitis. So you want to make sure that you're just establishing your differential diagnosis. Again, very common here, again, linear streaking, because um, you might think, hey, this looks like poison ivy or something like that as well. So the biggest thing is preventing the human beetle contact. So if you, you know, have, these are, I mean, they're all over the place. So you can see them even in your own backyard. So you want to make sure that you have your windows secured, that you don't have a lot of light. Beetles love light, so they're going to be attracted to that. Um, if the beetle lands on you, like I said before, you want to blow it or coerce it to go onto paper. The area should be um, immediately washed and the clothes that you are wearing too because that blistering agent could have gotten on your clothes and so you want to wash them as well. And again, you can do cool, wet soaks, topical steroids, and that usually takes care of the problem. Now, they did do a study, a small study set in Sierra Leone, and they found that this beetle also has um, potential for having pseudomonas associated with it. So they found that when they did a topical steroid along with Cipro, that the patients healed more quickly. So we're going to end today with bed bugs. This has been a huge thing that's been in the media lately, and uh, it's plastered all over newspapers and on TV, and there's specials on bed bugs. And so this is what we're going to end with today. They're small oval. They look a little brownish and red in color when they're an adult, and when they're uh, a nymph, a baby, they um, are clear, and if they actually feed, they turn bright red because you can see through them. And the adults are about five to seven millimeters in length. I've had patients bring them in in bags, dead, um, to show me. And I'm like, okay. And then I tell them they need to get somebody from the pest control to come out and treat their house because otherwise the problem's not going to go away. The biggest thing with these two is that if you're at a hotel or you're traveling and you come in contact, these things can get in your suitcases and they can come with you and you can bring them back. It's just like those German cockroaches too. Those are another thing. You can bring those with you and then you can bring them back. Or if other people come to your house and stay, they can bring stuff with them too that can end up causing infestation of your house. So this is the life cycle of a bed bug. It starts as an egg, it goes through some larval stages, and then ends up with an adult and then a, a fed adult. And where are they most commonly found? They're very common in the United States. And they think that the reason why we're seeing more of these is because we're not using as strong of pesticides as we used to, so the bed bugs are, are more prominent. They're most commonly found in mattresses and box springs, but they can be found in frames and curtains and cracks and wallpaper. So they can be found in many different places. But we do see that the majority of them are found in um, the box spring here and then the mattress. Those are as well. Couches and chairs they can be in. They're a pretty large percentage in those too. So pretty much wherever you would sit or sleep, those are where bed bugs. They're more active at nighttime. And <coughs> excuse me. I'm still getting over bronchitis a little bit. Um, they're very active at night, and so the bite, if they do bite you, it doesn't wake you up because it's painless. So, and then, then within, uh, you know, the next 24 hours, what, you're going to see these wheels. So many people might say, hey, you know, I, I 
I woke up and I didn't have anything when I went to bed and then I woke up and you know later that day I just saw these bumps, these wheels kind of appear on me and they tend to be in a linear fashion because they bite, bite, bite. And um, so you have to start thinking potential bed bugs. And they can get very, very bad. So they can look very big and red. They can be smaller than this as well, but they look like a wheel is what they look like. And, um, but not one that goes away. So not like urticaria. So treatment, you definitely want to make sure that you tell them they need to bring out a professional pest control service, that their house is inspected. And there's even, if you see here, there's even dogs that they have that are trained to search for bed bugs, um, which I think is sort of interesting. I mean, dogs can find cancer, they can find bed bugs. Um, topical steroids and oral antihistamines, first you gotta treat the problem, so they gotta get rid of their bed bugs, and then if they come to you, you're gonna treat with topical steroids. Uh, and then, of course, avoid secondary scra scratching. If they're excoriated, you might wanna give uh, a topical antibiotic or even an oral antibiotic if you're worried about secondary in infection in any of these kind of conditions that we talked about. And so, at the end, Questions, thank you. I think we did catch up on time. Good.